outside on the street and you know it's gorgeous the eiffel tower is sparkling behind us on the street so i turned around to say something to her and she was like halfway down the block as we turned onto the block and i'm like why is she not walking with me anymore and from down the block i see my boyfriend at the time jason walking toward me and my first thought honestly was the fever has returned i'm hallucinating jason who i just <laughs> talked to who is in florida he's not in france <laughs> Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Our guest today is no stranger to you all. She is, in fact, one of the founding members of Friends in Fiction and a very dear friend. There's a familiar saying that says, everything old is new again. And that, listeners, is what we are here to celebrate. Every creative type, from musician to author, hopes that some of their work will at some point get a fresh coat of paint and a reintroduction to the world. And that is exactly the treat that readers are now getting with an updated and fresh 10th anniversary edition of The Sweetness of Forgetting, written by our adored New York Times bestselling author, Kristen Harmel. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you, Ron. What a nice introduction. Unless yeah. you were saying that I, everything old, meaning me, I don't know. Am I no, new again? No. <laughs> you're, you're always new again. You're always reinventing yourself. <laughs> but it's so nice to have one-on-one. -on -one. We haven't had one-on-one -on -one chat yeah, in, in a long, nice. long time. So, And what a great occasion to do that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. No, it's, it's so wonderful to be able to celebrate this milestone with you. It's an honor. Can you tell us how the new edition came to be? You know, I'm actually not sure exactly how it came to be that, you know, this book came out 10 years ago, hence the 10th anniversary edition. And, you know, it did well all over the world, but didn't do particularly well in the States. It was my first book with gallery books. And it was really before World War II fiction became, you know, became the genre that it is today. It was before uh, the genre really exploded. It was three years before The Nightingale, which I think is really the book that sort of blew the genre wide open. And so it's always kind of been one of my regrets here that, that this book didn't really catch on. And, you know, a lot of people have found it after the fact through my other books. Mm -hmm. They've read The Book of Lost Names. They've read The Forest of Vanishing Stars. You know, they've read one of my other novels and gone backwards through my backlist. And so I get emails about it all the time. But it's wonderful to get just a fresh start with a nice you know, new cover that kind of speaks to what the book's about. And three new recipes. I had to go back into the kitchen and, and and do a, quite a bit of taste testing, which is yet one of the many reasons why my pants don't fit as well as they used to. Right, now. <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of baked goods that I had to taste. Right, um, so We're yeah, talk I, about those recipes. <laughs> we we will do, and then I'll, I'll probably be hungry again. Yeah, it has a beautiful new cover with Paris uh, on the cover, a Paris bakery, three new recipes that I wrote myself, uh, a new author's note, some updates to the text. And as someone reminded me today, I don't know why I had not been thinking about this. It, um, it also has 
the first chapter of The Paris Daughter, which was my upcoming novel. So it's kind of like a little sneak peek at, at what I have coming next. It's just such a fun, it's just fun to be getting out and talking about this book again. It's a charming little Kristen in a box. It's Kristen in a box, yes. <laughs> so I just want to remind people, back when the book first came out, Publishers Weekly said of it that Harmel manages to deliver an immersive and evocative tale of generations struggling to survive. Recipes sprinkled throughout the book allow readers to experience firsthand the sweetness of Hope's journey. Talk to me about hearing that, and then I'm going to ask you to talk about what the book is about. Oh goodness. Well, I mean, that's just such a nice, um, such nice praise. Um, and which I really appreciate and, and really appreciated at the time. Um, and you know, it just as a side note, it's always nice to get praise like that where you just kind of feel like they get it. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. that's so that, you know, that, that meant a lot to me and hearing that again is really nice. As for what the book is about, um, I would say it's about a woman named Hope who owns a bakery in Cape Cod. Uh, the bakery has been passed down from her grandmother to her. It's, she's sort of the keeper of this family tradition. And to her, the family tradition is baking. I mean, that's all, that's really all that she feels that has been passed down. And part of that is that her grandmother, um, was kind of a, a cold grandmother and, and the mother was a little bit of a cold mother. And so, you know, there wasn't a lot of talk in their family about things and about family history. And she thought she sort of understood where her grandmother came from, but now her grandmother has Alzheimer's and Hope's mother is, has died. And so it's just Hope and her grandmother. And as her grandmother begins to sort of succumb to the dementia, she begins saying things sometimes that don't really add up with Hope's uh, knowledge of her family's past. And during sort of a rare moment of lucidity, her grandmother gives her a list of names and says, this is my family. I need you to go to Paris and find out what happened to them. And Hope is just completely confused. She knows her grandmother was from Paris, but she's never heard these names before. And you know, there are the things the grandmother is saying just don't fit. So off she goes to Paris, where she discovers that her grandmother actually has this secret past buried in the Holocaust and in that time period, that World War II time period in Paris. And what actually exists at the heart of this story is the true history of the Grand Mosque of Paris, which was the Muslim center of Paris. It still is. And in World War II, the mosque secretly helped around a thousand Jewish refugees to escape, which is extraordinary. They also worked with Christian organizations doing that. So I love this idea. I loved it then and I love it now. This idea of these three religious traditions coming together, dropping those barriers, forgetting the things that separated them and just doing the right good human thing in this time of darkness. I mean, they could choose the side they wanted to be on and they chose the side of you know, bravery and good and daring and doing the right thing for their fellow man. And, you know, when I, when I wrote this novel back in around 2010, 2011, that felt very relevant. And I don't know that I could have predicted how much more relevant it would feel a decade on. I, I just think that message of, of remembering that despite our national borders, despite the differences in how we worship, despite the differences in the color of our skin or you know, any of the things that would serve potentially to divide us, we are all human at our core. And that's become a message that I think has found its way into other books of mine. But I think for me, that message began with the research I did into this book. And, and that's always just meant a lot to me. 
So I was going to turn the tables on you and go, what's it really about? But it seems <laughs> that you really answered that question, which is wonderful and so well put. <laughs> you can just count on me to ramble. If you ask me something, no. I'm like, let me just tell you everything in my brain. No, well, there's rambling and then there's rapt attention from my side. So it's <laughs> rambling, I'd be rolling my eyes and looking the other way, but <laughs> it's fascinating. And what does it feel like to have something that you really put so much into so long ago suddenly have a new life? It's a great question. I will tell you that when they told me that they were releasing a 10th, when my publisher told me they were going to release a 10th anniversary edition, my first thought was, what an honor. I mean, what, a, what an incredible honor. I think, you know, that it's rare to get an opportunity to do that and to have uh, a book completely repackaged and put out again and hopefully to find new readers. But my second thought was, oh my gosh, like I haven't picked up that book in 10 years. And I know I've grown and changed as a writer since then. So will this be a bad thing? Like, will this be like, oh no, like where's the Christian we know and love? This is terrible. But it is not. I, I do honestly, when they told me um, that they were going to do that, one of the first things I did was to go back and, and reread the book. And I thought, yes, I have grown and changed as a writer since then. There are certainly things I would have done differently. But it, it, I mean, it, it's an honor. It, it's, uh, and, and just to get, out on the road here in the States to, to talk about this book in a way I didn't really have the chance to 10 years ago. And also quite honestly, in the way, in a way that I didn't have the maturity or ability to talk about 10 years ago. I mean, you know, I mentioned that I think I've changed and grown as a writer, but I think I've changed and grown as a person too. You know, I've matured. I, when this book came out, I was, what would I have been? 32 or 33. Now I'm 43, you know, and, and there's an ocean of difference between those two ages. You don't think it, you know, when you're 33, but there is, you do a lot of growing up. So just to get back out there with the perspective of someone who's a little bit older, someone who's done a lot more research into World War II and just someone who has, I, I don't know, it's, we're living in a different world today and, and the book still feels relevant. And um, I feel like that means something too. Plus I should also add, you know, there's a, there's a something in the book that's very personal to me. And that is the relationship between the grandmother and the granddaughter. So when I was writing this novel, I was losing my own grandmother to Alzheimer's. So she, she had Alzheimer's. This is not her story. This is not about her. But the relationship between the grandmother and the granddaughter in the novel has a lot of elements of the relationship between myself and my grandmother, and particularly Hope's grief over losing the grandmother slowly, I, I think is very reflective of my own experience. So when I picked up the book to read it again, one of the things I thought on my first read through was wow, I remember feeling like that. And I remember that closeness I felt to my grandmother. And I remember that sadness of losing her and how it felt like some days I had her and some days I didn't. And sort of that, that awful roller coaster of emotions, but that's very much in this book. And, and so it's a, it's a time capsule. And it reminds me of a time that I still had her with me and, and, you know, still had her here. So there's something meaningful to me about that too. Absolutely. And one of the things that you have talked about is how this is the book that kind of changed the trajectory of your career. Yes. I could see almost like a line of demarcation where there was Kristen just kind of sudden, suddenly flipping a switch. Yeah. You know, it's, it was, a, it was an interesting switch for me. You're right. Because I started off writing romantic comedy and this is obviously not a romantic comedy, 
but I also think in a lot of ways, it is the transition book between the two phases of my career. Um, mm -hmm. you know, because there are elements of that kind of chiclet, as we were calling it at the time, that chiclet background, you know, there's a little bit more, there's probably a little bit too much of hope in her relationship with this love interest who kind of comes on the scene. You know, if I were to write the book today, I think the focus would have been more on hope and her journey and her relationship with her daughter, which is all very much a part of this. But I think, you know, I was still coming from just having written six chiclet novels, six romantic comedies. And, and I think there are elements of that in this book. But it was not a difficult transition for me as a writer, but it was a difficult transition for me in terms of how would I put it? Perhaps as a business person, because, you know, I knew I had to write this book. I, I, I was writing these romantic comedies, it, which was because I wrote my first book when I was 24. And when I was 24, it was the mid 2000s, the early 2000s. And Chiclet was all the rage. Everybody was reading mm -hmm. Sex in the City and The Devil Wears Prada and The Nanny Diaries and, you know, all, all of those books. And so that's what I was writing. I was in my 20s. I was kind of trying to find my way. Um, I imagined myself some sort of Carrie Bradshaw. I still do secretly. I have the shoe collection to match that. You know, so I, I think I started off writing what I thought I was meant to be writing. And then as I grew up a little bit, and as I got a little bit closer to 30, I thought, I don't think this is what I'm supposed to be writing. I like it, but it's not, I, I don't think this is right. I, this isn't me. And so I had the idea for this book and pitched it to my literary agent at the time, um, who basically just said, no, like, I don't believe you can do this. Um, and, and, you know, the editor at my publishing company basically said the same thing, like, oh, that's a nice idea, but that's not the kind of book you write. So I really had to start over, which took a little bit of courage. I could have very comfortably continued along that romantic comedy path, which, you know, hindsight 2020, if I had continued along that, I might be doing very well today. When you look at, you know, like <laughs> Colleen Hoover and Emily Henry and all these people who are doing it so well, but um, they write romantic comedy much better than I ever did. So I'll have to hand that to them. But it would have been comfortable to just stay along that smooth sailing path because it was the path that was clearest. It was the path that I could have signed a next book deal to do that. I could have kept writing that type of book over and over. But I just knew that wasn't me. And I knew I had to kind of take hold of that future and, and you know, shift my path enough so that I was on the path I was meant to be on, if, if that if that makes any sense. So there was a gap between books. Uh, we found a new publisher. I signed with a new literary agent. And, um, and then this became the book that changed my life. This was my first international bestseller. I still remember being in an airport waiting to fly to Italy for a book tour there when my Italian publisher called and said it, um, it just hit number nine on our bestseller list. It was the very mm. first time I'd ever had a bestseller. Oh. Um, and, and this book did well really all over the world. I mean, it, 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 it just kind of changed everything for me. It changed the trajectory of my career. It changed the way I believed in myself. And it reminded me of the, the power and importance of following my heart instead of necessarily following the safe path, which is a lesson I haven't always applied, but I think it's a lesson I've applied more often uh, since then, because I'm able to think back to that shift. That's wonderful. I, I, I love to, and, I, and as I know you a little bit, I know that uh, if somebody challenges you and tells you that you can't do something, you're like, <laughs> hold my martini. I will be right back. Hold my martini. Yes, that's it. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> It's kind of a challenge, and I think you rise to the challenge all the time. <laughs> Thank you. Thank all you so time. much. So 
Let's talk about what you said that kind of got embedded into your heart that this is the path you wanted to go, but what actually was the kernel that started it for you? You know, I think there were a few things. Uh, As I said, I think I just never felt entirely comfortable writing romantic comedy, not least of all because I'm not very funny. I mean, I'm really not a funny writer. So the the, the romantic part of that I could do, although awkwardly, but um, but the the comedy part um, always felt like I was outside of my comfort zone. As you know, I make very bad jokes and laugh at them myself, and that's (laughs) pretty much it. That's your thought about it. But, um, yeah, so I, I think it was just part of it was that I just felt I, I was just getting restless. I just it felt like I wasn't where I was supposed to be and I needed to find my way to where I was meant to be. But then there were a few other elements. While I was writing romantic comedy novels, I was also writing for People magazine. And one of the people I got to interview for People magazine was a man named Henry Landworth, who was a Holocaust survivor. Really extraordinary man. He um, founded the organization Give Kids the World, which is this incredible dream village here in the Orlando area that works with organizations such as Make a Wish to bring critically ill children and their families to Disney World or Universal or SeaWorld mm-hmm. or wherever they want to go for a dream vacation. So it was just this incredible thing that he founded. But he was a Holocaust survivor and interviewing him and spending this time with him and getting to know him just moved me so much that I think it just got kind of stuck in my head and stuck in my heart so much so that there were some things he said to me that I think really became the core of, um, of the character of Rose, who was Hope's grandmother in this book. There were pieces of how he dealt with surviving the Holocaust that became pieces, uh, um, psychological pieces of Rose's character too. And I don't think I necessarily set out to do that. I think it was just that his words had been in my head for so many years and I'd thought about them so hard and so deeply that they sort of inevitably found their way in. But, you know, which is nice because Henry's not here any, anymore either. Henry has passed away. But I feel like there's always a little piece of him in not only this book, but in the course of my career, which I think... Um, you know, I'm really proud to to feel that way because I think he was an extraordinary man who made a big impact on the world. So I, that was another, that was one of the elements. Another element is that I had lived in Paris for a little while in my early 20s. And I was astounded when I lived in Paris, when I moved to Paris, how little Parisian Holocaust history I knew. And I feel like you know, 10 years on, we're all so well-versed in that because so many of us who enjoy historical fiction have read The Nightingale and have read, you know, there are many, many historical fiction novels that take place in Paris now during World War II, but there weren't when I wrote this book. And so uncovering that and realizing how much had happened on the very streets I was walking, you know, with people who looked out their window and saw the same view I saw, or people who went to the same markets or, you know, walked along the Seine and had the, you know, similar thoughts. Like it, I just felt so close to it in a way that I hadn't before. And so that felt important to tell this story. I mean, I, I think those were kind of the main things. And then, you know, in, in my own family, I was raised, uh, Catholic. My mom is Catholic, but my dad's side of the family is Jewish. And that was the side of my family that I really didn't have a lot to do with when I was a kid. So I was not raised with that tradition, with those traditions. I wasn't really raised with that background, but it's part of me. It's in my blood. And I think the older I got, the more I wanted to understand myself and where I'd come from a little bit better. And so I think that was part of the draw to writing about um, World War II as well. That's exactly right. And (laughs) as we're talking, I'm thinking that these elements that you're talking about, 
Did you kind of work them out through writing the book? Did you kind of make sense of them for yourself? Because they seem like a lot of things from many different angles and, 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 and writing about them can really focus what you think about it and how it affects you. Yeah. You know, I, I think I've said this before, just in conversations with other authors and, and maybe it, maybe you and I have talked about this, but I do think that when writers sit down to write a book, I think we, for the most part, wind up exploring something that we feel like we need to work out. And that's not necessarily the thing you think you're exploring at the beginning. So sometimes I think the, the things that we need to work through in our own minds kind of find their way onto the page. It's like free therapy that you're giving yourself through like the arduous process of writing 400 pages. So for me, I think this was the beginning of understanding some of those things. But I think that there is an element of that in the fact that I have continued writing about World War II and writing about and writing about the impact on families um, from World War II. I think I'm really interested also in, I guess you could call it generational trauma, but more specifically, the way that one's coping mechanisms and life experiences passed down through the generations. So in The Sweetness of Forgetting, for example, the grandmother sort of has this whole hidden past that she's never talked about. And she believes that if she locks that past away and never speaks of it and just kind of reinvents herself, she can put it all behind her. But of course, that's not what happens. You can't just lock things away and, and it's like they cease to exist. They're a part of you. They're a part of who you are. And I think if you don't deal with them, they come out in other ways. So in the sweetness of forgetting, one of the ways the grandmother's past comes out is that this attempt to reinvent herself has made her a lot of difficulty expressing emotions to people. So she's very cold to her daughter, despite the fact that she loves her more than anything in the world, but she's just kind of lost this ability to feel and to express these emotions. And that in turn gets passed on to her granddaughter because the way you raise your children impacts the way they raise their children and so on and so forth. So I think this was my first time exploring that. And that's become something I've been interested in exploring since then. And as I've gotten older and as I've had my own child, uh, it's something I, I think I've given a great deal of thought to both as a writer and as just as a human being over the years, how the choices we make both come from what was before us and then also feed forward into the decisions we make for our children. I think that that is one of the most powerful tools of fiction and really well-written fiction is that kind of thing that we can relate to it. And it does make us think about our own past and what was, what decisions were made before we yes. grew up and, and, and reiterate what, how we want to do that for our own children. I think that's one of the big powers of fiction is that empathy and that thinking and basically not doing what was done before us. <laughs> Right. You're right. And you know, that's one reason I love surrounding myself with readers, you know, people who love to read because I do think, I, I think that, I think that just by the act of reading, you become more empathetic and you, you become someone who understands yourself and the world a little bit better. Yeah. Readers, readers are the best people. <laughs> I love people so, who love books. Right. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. Right. Yeah. But I, also back to something you were saying earlier, <laughs> I, I really think that novels have made people really know more about things like the Holocaust and what yeah. happened. I think when people feel they're reading a history book, they don't take it in as much. It, they, their heart's not in it. Yes. But when it's a great story, it's so powerful yeah. and you learn so much from it. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. And I think, 
you know, I never sit down with the thought in my head, like, oh, I'm going to teach a history lesson, but I'm fascinated mm. to learn things that I've never heard before or uncover little pieces of history that just make me kind of take in a breath and say, oh, I can't believe that happened. And I think there's something to be said for the idea that history sticks when it enters through your heart rather than just through your brain. So if you can feel for these characters, you can feel for what they're going through and you're going to remember the things that happened to them and, and the things they had to go through. And I think you process them in a different way. So, Absolutely. and you know, it's not just, I, I, you know, I don't, it's not that I hope that you come away from one of my books thinking, oh, well, this particular roundup happened on July 16th, 1942. It's that I hope you come away from my books thinking this roundup happened and it shouldn't have happened. And here are the, here is how it affected the world. And like, you should feel that sense of outrage and sadness and grief and, and despair that this happened in the world not that long ago. But those are the kind of things that make us change the world we're in now. And I mean, you know, it's, it's such a common expression to say, you know, that if you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. But right. the past does have lessons for us. And there are so many things about the past that are still so relevant in today's world. That I, I think that reading about the past helps us to understand wh where we are right now just a little bit better. Yeah, quite a bit. I, I yeah. One of the things that struck me in the book was the families that trusted that they would be taken care of and the yeah. people that it's now going to come to me and I'm not going to be affected by this because I'm a good person or I work hard. Yeah. And they found out that that wasn't the case. And I can't help but get chills about where we are in the world right now. Yeah. It's, I, it, it's it, chilling. I, I feel the same. So, I, you know, I, I think that reading things like this or really any World War II book should really just be a call to action to, to not, to not forget, but also to remember that we all play a role. We all play a role in a small way. It doesn't mean, you know, you have to take up arms or, you know, I, I don't know, sell your whole life's worth of, you know, earnings to donate to something, but we can all make little differences in the world. And it's those little differences that add up to the big things. And, and I think that's a message that kind of, um, resonates through a lot of books about this time period, that it just takes everybody trying to stand up and do the right thing. And when we're all standing together, the world becomes a better place. We are. And so since it's just you and I, I'm going to dive into your research. Okay. We don't get much of a chance to do this. The story about the Muslims of the Grand Mosque of Paris is so fascinating and something I didn't know before. And I assume you kind of happened upon it too, but yeah. how did you first hear about that? And then what, how did you dive into it to learn all about it? Because it really, really says so much about the world and the good things in the world. Yeah. It was a fascinating story to come upon and Honestly, it was not part of the original idea for the book because I didn't know about it. So I knew I wanted to write a World War II book. I knew the story of Rose, who's the grandmother in the book. I knew her story and I knew that there was going to be a lost love, someone she was separated from during World War II, which shaped in some ways the course of the rest of her life. So I knew those things about the book. When I initially conceived of the idea for this book, I saw it as being about Rose coming to America and the love of her life also coming to America and seeing her as an extra in a movie and realizing oh, she was still out there and him searching for her. So it was still about Jake and Rose and I, in my Jacob and Rose. And in my mind, Rose still had dementia. Like that element was there. So some of those pieces were there, but then I went to Paris to start researching this and they have an amazing Holocaust museum there. They have, um, 
uh, research people there who are wonderful and who, who were able to help me and spoke much better English than I speak French. And just in talking to them, um, I came across this story of the Muslims of the Grand Mosque of Paris. And there's not a lot written about them. There has been a French language film made about the, um, the leader of the mosque. There's been a children's book written about them, which I actually did use as part of the research. I mean, it's a very well, it's a, it's a picture book, but it's for like older, older children. Um, so it, there's a lot of research in it, plus, uh, a little bibliography in the back that led me to other stories. But the fact is even a lot of the people who were affiliated with the mosque during that time did not know this was happening right under their noses. So the majority of the time, the Jewish refugees that they saved were not kept in Paris. I know, well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil the book too much. The way that it unfolds in the book was not necessarily the norm. Much more often, they were either snuck out through underground tunnels that led from the mosque to the river and then put on barges and in some cases hidden inside of wine uh, wine barrels and smuggled down river but also in some cases they were given false papers and they lived under false identities in Paris um, and in some of these cases the uh, the charade went so far as uh, they would actually put false gravestones in the Muslim cemetery so that you could say, well, yeah, of course he's Muslim. Look, there's his grandfather buried right there. And, and you can look back through the records and obviously that's his grandfather. Wow. So, I, I mean, it was, it, it's just, it's fascinating. It's a really just a fascinating true story. And again, in light of just the, di the division we have in the world today, fascinating to think about these Muslims who were basically safe because the, the Nazi, the Germans were, um, it, it was to their advantage to sort of keep, uh, in a little bit of an alliance with them because of interests in North Africa. So the Nazis weren't really after the Muslims. Like they, they were sort of living safely under the radar. So they were really very much putting themselves at risk by doing this, by going out of their way to help these Jewish citizens who would have otherwise been rounded up, deported and murdered. So um, it was just an extraordinary story and one that means a lot today, I think. It's amazing. And for me, I don't understand a lot about many different religions other than what I was brought up in and what I've been exposed to. But like one of the things in the the Quran was like, if, if a problem's brought to you, it's it's your responsibility yeah. now to help. Yes. And I thought, oh, that should be everybody's <laughs> It, it should. There's a little side story in the sweetness of forgetting where they meet, uh, where, where Rose and or Hope and her daughter meet a family from Albania. And that was very much the feeling there that if someone came to your door, you had to, you and asked for your help, you had to help them. And that is why Albania in particular, um, was someplace that sheltered quite a lot of Jewish refugees during the war, which, which is surprising. That was another surprising thing to find out, but that concept of having to help a stranger, of being obligated to help a stranger is called uh, BESA, B-E-S-A. And I think it's a beautiful concept yes. that, as you say, should be something we all we all take in. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So switching, still talking about research, <laughs> but I want to switch a little bit. One of the voices that was really touching, and, and I won't lie, I brought a tear, was, was being able to get into Rose's mind, being able to write from her suffering with Alzheimer's and what it was like for her. And, and even, well, that'll give away something, but talk to me about how you, you talked about your own grandmother, but it takes a little bit more than that to really write from that perspective. Yeah. Um, I did a lot of reading about Alzheimer's at the time, a lot of reading about the psychology of it, about the phases of it. 
about kind of how it plays out and, and the different, uh, the different stages as someone progresses through it. But, you know, because I did want to come at that, at, at the, at the narration, even though it's a third person narration. So it's not Rose saying, I did this, I did that. It's, right. it's a third person narrator saying she did this, she did that, but it's pretty much from her point of view in those chapters. Um, and I, so I wanted to come at that from not just an emotional place, you know, in connection to my own grandmother, but an educated place. Cause I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to get that just right. So that was one of the research things I spent the most time on because I, I didn't want to do a disservice to, to, people with Alzheimer's or people dealing with relatives with Alzheimer's. But beyond the research though, I think a great deal of that really was drawn from my grandmother, just seeing her, you know, go through stages where some days she knew exactly who I was and where she was and everything that was going on. And other days she didn't know who I was and couldn't remember things from, you know, one moment to the next. It's a, um, I think it's an awful thing for the person suffering from Alzheimer's. And then it's an awful thing for the people who love them. It's, it's both of you losing each other very, very, very slowly in a way that's just terrible and, and unfair. And I just, I hope that's something that the medical community can, can solve one day because it's a, it's, it's a, it's a terrible way to lose someone. And I think it's a terrible way to be lost. Very well put. Um, I think I can't think of anybody who hasn't been affected by this yeah. disease somewhere in their life. And like you portrayed it with just such gentleness and kindness and it could easily have gone bad you know oh. something you know i think you have a talent there with with getting into the, the thick of it so let's switch just a little bit so there's a line in the book that the love of rose's life jacob says to her before they're separated in paris during world war ii and he said as long as there are stars in the sky i will always love you can you talk a bit about that, how that line shows up in your own life and, and how it got in the book? Yeah. So I love that line, but never did mm -hmm. I realize how much it would echo through my life for the next, um, the next decade and then hopefully beyond. So first of all, I, I love that idea. You know, when I first thought about this book, and as I mentioned, even before I knew all the things that were kind of going to happen in the book, I kind of started with this idea of these two people that have been separated. And the first time I kind of saw Rose in my head was Rose sitting at her window, looking out at the stars, imagining Jacob up there among the stars. And to me, there's something just really powerful that we can all connect to about that, that idea that we're under, we're all under the same sky. And, you know, it's the same sky here, you know, 80 years after World War II. Yes, the stars move and rotate. I understand all of that. But like, that's there's just something universal about being under the same sky, under the same moon, under the same sun. Like, we're all kind of connected. It was, I think it goes mm -hmm. to that theme of all of us being connected to each other, no matter where, where we are in place or time. So that was kind of, the, I think, part of the reason behind behind that. But I, stars have shown up, I think, in every one of my books since then. I just can't stop. The stars are important I was to me. going to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's never really delivered. But man, it keeps getting more and more obvious, doesn't it? Right? Like the forest of vanishing stars. I finally put it in the title. Um, <laughs> it made but, top billing. Yes. Yes. But in terms of how this book or how that line that sort of showed up in my own life, um, I have to tell you, I was, I was touring this book in 2013 in Europe. I was in, I think on that trip, I was in Italy. I was in England. I was in Italy and I was in Spain, like on, on tour for this book. 
And I had, I decided I was going to go before I flying home. I was going to hop over from Spain to Paris for a night to see my old roommate. So my old roommate and I, when I had lived in Paris, lived in the same apartment that Rose lives in when she lives in Paris in the sweetness of forgetting. It's right near the Eiffel Tower. So, you, you know, you could see the Eiffel Tower from the window. You walk out on the street and the Eiffel Tower is right behind you. So I stopped to see Lauren. My flight was late. It was just a disastrous day. I had been really sick in Spain. Like I had some kind of a flu. I still didn't, I didn't feel well. Like I was dragging my bags from the airport. I, it was before I had a cell phone that worked in France because this was 2013. I almost didn't find her. Like she hadn't been able to go to the restaurant we were supposed to meet. It was just like a catastrophe. All of it was a catastrophe. So I got to the restaurant and all I wanted at that point was just to go back to her apartment where I was staying and just face plant in a bed. I was just so tired. I just wanted to go to sleep. And so she was like, let's go buy our old apartment. And I thought, I don't want to go like, let's do it tomorrow. We've got all day tomorrow. She's like, no, 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 no. It looks so pretty after dark. And I was like, but Lauren, I really don't feel well. I've just gotten over being sick. Like I, I just, please, like it would mean so much to me if I could just go to your apartment and go to sleep. And she was like, no, I'll drag your suitcases. We're going to go buy the old apartment. So I thought, well, that's really strange. So we went to the old apartment just outside on the street. And, you know, it's gorgeous. The Eiffel Tower is sparkling behind us on the street. So I turned around to say something to her and she was like halfway down the block as we turned onto the block. And I'm like, why is she not walking with me anymore? And from down the block, I see my boyfriend at the time, Jason, walking toward me. And my first thought, honestly, was the fever has returned. I'm hallucinating Jason, who I just <laughs> talked to, who is in Florida. He's not in France. <laughs> But sure enough, Jason was in France and he had arranged with Lauren to bring me by the street outside the old apartment. And he got down on one knee with the Eiffel Tower sparkling behind him and proposed using that line, as long as there are stars in the sky, I will always love you. And because he had been waiting there for so long, because we were so late, because my flight had been delayed, he had talked to people who lived in the building um, because they were basically like, why are you standing outside our building for hours? <laughs> like, I'm sure they thought he was crazy. And he explained what he was doing. And they cut out paper stars and waited on their balcony to watch the proposal. And when I said yes, they rained paper stars down from the balcony. So paper stars came falling from the sky <laughs> after I said yes. So um, yes, so that it was pretty extraordinary. So that is a part of our story. And we got married about a year later at Epcot, which is not France, but in the French, we had our reception with our wedding cake and all of that in the French pavilion with the fake Eiffel Tower sparkling behind us. <laughs> that is one of the most romantic stories I have ever heard. In my it was life. pretty awesome. He gets, uh, yeah, he gets a lot of extra points. I mean, to fly, he, and that was only his second time in Europe. I mean, he just, he didn't know what he was doing or where he was going. And he, you know, a, a flight attendant friend had given him the, a companion pass. Like it was just all cobbled together, but worked out absolutely perfectly. It was very romantic. Okay, how do we go on from that? Hmm. <laughs> well, let's talk about food. <laughs> so I, I would love to know so many different things about the role of bakeries and pastries through here, but I think people have to read it on their own because it is a piece of the story that um, is meaningful. But I do want to talk about the recipes that you included, especially star pies. Oh, my God, I want to make one now. <laughs> Did you have to test them all? 
Well, I, I created all the recipes. So, um, yeah, which took, uh, which took a lot of traipsing through the bakeries of Paris and taste testing things, which, you know, I've clearly gone very wrong in my life. I got it right twice. I, I wrote one book that involved a lot of eating pastries throughout Paris. And then I wrote one book about champagne that took place in champagne that required me to go drink a whole lot of champagne. Um, those were really two high points, um, as far as like doing life right. I don't know what's wrong with me that I haven't progressed to like, I don't know, read, like, I, I need to write something about Napa or about chocolate or something like that. How about, how about writing a book about winning the lottery? <laughs> I, exactly. And just manifested. Exactly. But yeah, so the recipes in the book were, all came from my kitchen, all came from me and a lot of trial and error taste testing things. So without giving too much away, it turns out that the pastries that Hope has been baking in the bakery all kind of connect to this family story. So in other words, her grandmother had been telling her the stories all along. She just never said them in words, which I think actually is very true of a lot of families. I think a lot of families pass down traditions in things or in food or in other ways that are not spoken aloud, but those stories are being passed forward, even if you don't know the story, if that makes sense. But in this book, very much so, the stories are passed forward in in recipes, in, in these baked goods that the grandmother makes for the granddaughter. And then the granddaughter now, you know, is making for her bakery. So, you know, I had to go and spend a lot of time eating my way around Paris. Um, there, the, the Grand Mosque of Paris actually has its own bakery that's open to the public. So you can go and eat there. You can go and eat some of these things that Hope talks about in the book, that Rose talks about in the book. The, there are a ton of Jewish bakeries in Paris, um, and then just a ton of traditional Parisian French bakeries in Paris. And so bringing all of that back, I, I, tasted things that felt very specific to those areas and to those people. And so those were some of the things that found their way into the novel. As were some recipes, you know, I'm originally from Massachusetts and a portion of the book takes place in Cape Cod, which is where my grandparents lived. And so there are recipes that, uh, that are similar to things I had in my childhood as well, including the North Star cupcakes. And then the overnight meringues are actually something my grandmother used to make me all the time. So the inclusion of those overnight meringues was really a nod to my grandmother who still teases me or still before she died, teased me about, I would come to her and say, how about one of those little white things? And then I would say, now, how about one for the other hand? So that was like her, one of her favorite stories to tell about me. And those meringues are in the book. So oh my and the Cape Cod yeah. cookies. I'm all over those. <laughs> but of course, star pies are the other thing. And I don't know if you know this, but I did a little online sleuth thing. People were inspired and they actually were posting pictures and um, giving you, you know, credit about the recipe. And they, they awesome. had pictures of all the things that they had made you know, inspired by you. It's <laughs> been extraordinary to visit book clubs and um, in person or, or do um, events at country clubs and things like that, where you show up and all of the pastries have been made. I mean, it, I, it, that's just amazing to me. The, the first time that happened that I did an event at a country club was for about a hundred people. And they had given the recipes to the country club's chef and the chef made everything. And it was just all wow. beautiful and displayed. And I just thought like, oh my gosh, this just came out of my head and it's here. It's pretty amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. So finally, at the end of the book, there's a little tease of your next book, as you mentioned at yes. the beginning, The Paris Daughter. What can you share about that project? Ooh, I'm so excited about it. Uh, the Paris Daughter comes out in June, so it's still a little way off. But as you said, you can get a little tease in the back of this book. It's about a chapter and a half. Maybe it might even be 
uh, uh, two chapters. I, I can't remember, but yeah, it's the story of, it's kind of, it's a return to Paris because my last World War II book was set in Eastern Poland. So this is me getting back to, um, my, my wonderful, very much loved Paris, but it is about two mothers and two daughters, um, an allied bomb that falls where it shouldn't in the suburbs of Paris two families torn apart. You know, not everybody lives when this, when this bomb drops and the bookstore that, that all of the children were in is, is leveled to the ground. It's just reduced to rubble. So one of the mothers had left Paris and left her child in the safekeeping of the other mother because she had to flee Paris. The Germans were after her and it was the only way they could survive. She comes back expecting to retrieve her daughter. And her daughter's gone. And so is the woman who cared for her daughter, vanished without a trace. And so the story picks up again in 1960 New York, where a chance meeting between the new, the two mothers um, sets them sort of on this collision course where the secrets of the past will finally be revealed. There's just all these mysteries that are left dangling at the end of World War II. But now, inevitably, those questions will be answered. So that's kind of the story, dual timeline. Wow. Um, but it, it, but I, I shouldn't say dual timeline. It takes place in two timelines, but it's it's told in a linear way. It doesn't hop back and forth between time. It starts just before World War II begins, um, and then it skips ahead after World War II to uh, 1960 New York. Well, I know, in addition to me, everybody else listening is just waiting and waiting to get their hands on this one. Yeah. So, Kristen, this has been amazing. I think listeners are going to eat this up. <laughs> they get to know a little bit more about you and your work and, and kind of a little bit of your history, because a lot of people, you know, love to delve back into uh, earlier works and, and they know a lot more now. So good luck with the book. I know it's out this week. Yeah. And we're going to wish the best for it. And I hope everybody gets their hands on it. Well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me, Ron. You're, you do such an amazing job with this podcast. And um, it's an honor to be on the, the interviewee side rather than interviewing for once. And you're just so good at doing this. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, please. I'll spend time with you on either side of the <laughs> fence. Trust me. <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. I know on behalf of the Fab Four, we are so glad that you're here and we hope you look forward to episodes every Friday. Please be sure and share with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.